This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to the 25th episode of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm here with two honored guests to talk about a disaster that's been going on for 73 years and in the past month got even worse. In early May 2021, Israel's attempt to evict Palestinian families from their longtime homes in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem escalated into open violence, which then escalated into war, focused on the tiny and vulnerable Gaza Strip that has killed hundreds, mostly unarmed Palestinians, and left thousands displaced. I'm here with two people who have devoted their lives to the cause of bringing peace and justice to these lands. Ariel Gold is national co-director of Code Pink and an outspoken, tireless voice for truth, sanity, and humanity amidst the ear-breaking noise surrounding Middle East policy. Ariel has a degree in policy analysis from Cornell and a master's of social work from Binghamton University and can be found on social media and numerous news outlets. Thanks for being here, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me. Hamam Farah is a board member at Palestine House in Toronto, Canada, and is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and life coach. I really like the message on Hamam's Twitter account, when I'm not fighting injustice, I'm helping others fight their demons. I think we've got a few demons to address here today. So hello, Hamam. Hello, Mark. Uh, Thank you for having me. (laughs) Hamam, I read on your Twitter that At one point during the recent attacks on Gaza, your great aunt could not be found. So I'd like to begin by asking you about the situation on the ground, as you understand it today, a few days after the ceasefire on May 20th. Can you tell us about Gaza and Palestine today? Yeah, um, so people are reeling from what happened, of course. Uh, You know, when the ceasefire came into effect, there were mass celebrations in Gaza, um, you know, framing this as a victory for the Palestinian people, which, I mean, sure, in the short term, perhaps it is. Um, uh, you know, Israel had to stop its bombardment and uh, and postpone its uh, planned um, ethnic cleansing in East Jerusalem. Uh, however, you know, long term, as always, as, as has always been the case after these, uh, these uh, bombardments of Gaza, um, uh, uh, the people are, you know, slowly wake up to the reality that they've been in for so long, which is a prolonged uh, blockade, illegal blockade of Gaza, um, a, you know, a military occupation on top of the blockade that's that's been ongoing um, since 1967 in Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, and the reality of uh, refugeeism that most of the Palestinians in Gaza are not from Gaza, they're, they're refugees from uh, uh, from what became the state of Israel, and they had to be expelled by the Zionist movement uh, in order to create the Jewish majority state that uh, that is Israel today, and 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 so that's why it's the most densely populated area in the world, um, the Gaza Strip. It's such a small place with uh, 2.2 million people at least, um, and so the reality now is, you know, as people have to contend with uh, the displacement as uh, you know you mentioned that thousands have been displaced and now that's that's a very serious issue uh, that we have to contend with um, uh, and the reality is back to the reality under siege Hamam, can you tell me a little about your own background you are you are a palestinian i i assume yes yes no i i, I was born in gaza and had visited there uh, many times as, as a teenager um experienced it firsthand and uh, I was there during the first intifada the first uprising and uh, the just before the second intifada as well I was there uh it's the, for me that the worst part is has has been the separation between uh, family members uh, you know just going to visit your family and not knowing whether you're ever going to see them again and every time it's like saying goodbye you have to wonder is this the last time uh, we're going to see each other and that's that's one of the most difficult experiences uh, i've endured and it's a common experience for many palestinians the anxiety and uh, of separation and trauma of separation and goodbye um you know we are a, a nation in exile as uh, as we were called after 1948 
And uh, we have to kind of remind ourselves that this struggle is at its core a struggle of refugee rights and the right to return, the right to return home. Um, and we can't let the current events kind of get in the way of that. Uh, this is why it's been so ongoing for so long. Uh, you know, we've been trying to treat symptoms here and there, but not getting to the root cause of the problem, uh, which is, um, you know, the right of return under international law. And then, of course, uh, the military occupations, illegal settlements and all of that. It makes me just so sad to hear these words that I already knew, but to hear them again just hits again. Ariel, I'd also like to know what is your understanding of this situation on the ground? Well, I'm not sure that I so much agree about um, winning in any way. The evictions in Sheikh Jarrah have simply been um, postponed. Um, I do agree that that you know there were some successes, including getting that postponement in Sheikh Jarrah, but um, after the the aerial bombardment of Gaza um, and this ceasefire with with no concessions in this case from Israel, their uh, nautical miles for fishing uh, were not extended. Um, you know, there wasn't further opening of borders of, of really anything after the, the I believe think it was the day or a couple days after this uh, Israeli forces burst in again to the Al-Aqsa compound firing tear gas and stun grenades um, and you know what was lost in this latest escalation uh, around 150 lives um, the you know, what was gained within that, I think, were was more awareness in terms of uh, world opinion and more support for Palestinian rights. But the, the loss of life, the, the toll, um, the devastation in Gaza that that did, and loss of life in the West Bank, as well as um, Israeli forces shot live ammunition, ammunition at uh, protesters um, came at, at such a horrific and uh, heavy, heavy price. And I think we are um, in not too different of a state than we were in under the Trump administration. Joe Biden, during this uh, horrific attack, so grotesquely disproportionate, the New York Times, um, and, and so much applause to the New York Times for this, because I was shocked, pleasantly shocked to see them today on the front page of their print edition, um, put the photos of all the children who died. Uh, but we really see in that there was all but, I think it was 66 children killed and only two of them were killed in Israel. So we see this gross disproportion of violence. And yet throughout the this horrific massacre, uh, Joe Biden parroted the same garbage that we have heard from administration after administration. Israel has the right to defend itself. He even went so far as to say that Israel was not overreacting. I mean, what would he consider overreacting while Israel was bombing residential buildings, medical clinics, uh, the road, the main road leading to the main hospital? If that isn't overreacting, and if that isn't disproportionate, I don't know what is. And I would say that the situation on the ground remains as dire as ever. Right after Joe Biden came into office, or I think it was the week before Biden came into office, Israel, and I think this was a real um, middle finger to the Biden administration and a test of the Biden administration, announced that uh, the approval of more settlement units so really saying to the Biden administration, what are you going to do? And the Biden administration answered with nothing. And hey, do you, you know, uh, Israel depleted some of their precision guided weapons, pre you know, these weapons designed to precisely hit their targets, like the offices of international media and 16 story high residential buildings. So they depleted some of those uh, precision-guided munitions, and the Biden administration is now pushing through a $735 million sale, precision-guided weapons. These weapons are 
designed to precisely hit their targets, like human beings and human life. And uh, we're, we're working, doing everything we can to stop this sale. But this has really been the Biden administration's response to a, yet another massacre in Gaza to say, oh, you depleted your weapon supply. Don't worry, we'll replenish it. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- th- this is appalling and grotesque. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I live in Toronto, Canada, so we have a very similar kind of attitude here um, in, in uh, from the Canadian government towards uh, the state of Israel. It's, it's, you know, Israel is a big ally of Canada as well. And, uh, you know, there are ruling class interests that uh, that are involved uh, as, as well. So uh, recently here, what we've been sort of fighting is is this uh, recent, uh, well, I mean, the weapons, the weapons divestment, the weapons uh, boycott uh, uh, movement is, is growing here. And uh, definitely, the most recent crisis has has really put a lot of pressure, I think, on on our governing officials in Canada to to stop the sale of weapons to Israel. So, I was recently involved in um, in a, a push through a push with the NDP, the New Democratic Party in Canada, uh, which is sort of the left left wing uh, party, to uh, to divest to divest to to pass a motion to uh, support the banning of, of uh, weapon sales to Israel um, and as and also to uh, boycott settlement products as well. And we had a lot of work to do in order to get that motion passed through the party, um, but we finally were able to do it uh, just this year, uh, just before this crisis hit, actually. So it, it was a, a very interesting moment that this happened and then the crisis happened and then you had... Uh, the NDP actually calling for uh, uh, Canada to stop w- weapon sales to Israel until the occupation ends. So that was really, you know, a local achievement here for us in Canada. But n- nevertheless, there's obviously so much more work to do, and this isn't this hasn't done anything uh, materially yet on the ground. Um, the Liberal Party, the ruling Liberal Party, obviously uh, doesn't, you know, hasn't moved one bit on this issue. They're busy doing what they've been doing for a long time, you know, what they've always been doing, which is to sort of have, you know, spout the both sides rhetoric. Um, uh, uh, you know, whenever it's critical of Israel, it's just, you know, over Twitter, there's a, some verbal condemnation uh, or a criticism rather, not even a condemnation, I would say. Um, like yesterday, for example, uh, Bob Ray, the UN uh, guy for Canada, you know, put out a statement saying that. You know, Canada has always been clear that we're against, uh, no, he didn't even say that. He said Canada has always been clear that we don't think that the uh, evictions in East Jerusalem are acceptable or should be happening, rather. Um, and that's the extent of it, that, you know, Canada believes that this, uh, these evictions shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. You know, it's just an opinion. That's not a condemnation even. It's not like it's not even getting that far, let alone putting material pressure on Israel through sanctions. Um, but the call to sanctions has grown, and it's grown exponentially, I believe, in public opinion uh, since this crisis. And uh, most recently, the uh, Canadian transport minister, Omar al-Gabra, um, he refused to uh, to cancel a weapons deal with Israel. Uh, Canada's purchasing um, uh, weapons from Israel right now uh, through a $36 million contract with Elbit Systems, uh, Israel's largest weapons company. And there has been pressure on uh, the Canadian transport minister, it's under his jurisdiction actually, to cancel that contract. Um, And he's been totally silent about it, of course, as we can expect from the liberals. Uh, And yet, but the pressure has been growing and it's more than I've seen before in the past. Uh, I believe uh, most recently Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East uh, released a report saying that uh, uh, t- t- over 10,000 emails have now gone to uh, the transport minister demanding um, demanding that he cancel that contract. So the, there is a lot of pressure happening. It's been on the radar for a lot of the protests that have happened. They've demanded, you know, vocalized that demand to the transport minister to cancel the deal. 
Um, but of course, you know, we want a more gen, we want to keep pushing the more general line of let's ban all weapon sales to Israel uh, moving forward um, until it abides by international law. We hear a lot about whether or not perceptions are changing in the public at large, whether or not um, governments are being moved to possibly stop supporting this extremely imbalanced weapons situation, and also whether journalism, you know, whether, whether outlets like the New York Times are finally showing Palestinian faces as well as Israeli faces. I have just this gut feeling that the single most important crisis is the one that's actually going on on the ground there. I'm worried that we could talk a lot about whether or not governments are being moved to change, but the the gaping wound of hatred and fear and escalation and violence and and again fear, I'm I'm sure fear is the number one thing driving this that is Israel, Palestine, and Gaza. You know, that is Netanyahu and Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. I'd love it if we could focus on that, because that's where you two, who both know more about this topic than me, can really maybe answer some questions that I've wanted to know, which is, you know, even if the governments of the world and the people of the world were to change their prejudices, the the problem would still be there. How can the problem itself possibly be addressed? I wonder if all of that made sense. Let me throw that to Ariel first. Well, I'll begin by saying, and and hopefully I understood this correctly, that I think it has to trickle up to the governments. Um, I'm a, a real believer that this is not a religious conflict or this is not a conflict of... Jews and Palestinians being unable to get along with each other. They just happen not to like each other. This isn't a real estate dispute. This is a political conflict. And I think that um, we are seeing these, these changes in public opinion and support, and those are so important. But we're not going to see change on the ground until we can Um, get that to rise up to the level of government until we can block these weapons sales, until we can um, at least condition, I'd love to see us cut uh, U.S. military assistance to Israel, until we can stop here in the U.S., until we can stop blocking U.N. resolutions during this last attack on Gaza, the U.S. blocked four UN security resolutions that were so mild, all they did was call for a ceasefire. I mean, come on, we're just calling for a ceasefire. It wasn't um, anything more than that. And there were four resolutions blocked in a row. So I think in order to actually get that change, uh, we, we have to be able to build the momentum from our grassroots movements and from our political um, opinion changes to move our governments. Um, and, and the U.S. is so complicit. I think the U.S. is so much of a, a linchpin in this situation. Um, I, I, it will really be when the U.S. finally changes that Israel is forced to. Um, but I think that it, it's got to happen from our governments. Yeah, I guess what I would, what I can add to that is like, I, I totally agree with Ariel because Back in, in Palestine, we do have a leadership problem where, you know, unlike South Africa, when, you know, it was pretty clear the ANC itself called for BDS, the, the world implemented BDS, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and he was seen as the leader, right? But here in Palestine, it's much more complicated than that. And we do have a crisis of, uh, of, of being just leaderless, basically. Um, you know, recently the Palestinian Authority canceled elections, uh, ostensibly because Palestinians in East Jerusalem couldn't vote. Um, but also, you know, they've been postponing elections for so long because of the fear that Hamas would take, would take power. And of course, after this most recent crisis, Hamas would 100% take power. Um, and that's the, seems to be the consensus, right? So, so I don't know what's, you know, going to happen with that. Um, we, I guess what I'm saying is to a certain degree, Although, of course, you know, Palestinian resistance on the ground is ongoing, 
and of course it plays a major role in all of this but at the same time you know world pressure international pressure is going to have to play a big role here too um so and that's you know why i agree with ariel that uh, there really need, do, does need to be a huge push from the international world um ordinary people to, on their governments to act of course um I'd love to hear your own stories and as much as possible, help our listeners understand the things that we may assume they understand and, and do not. Yeah. So basically it was when I became truly politicized um, was uh, just after nine 11 and uh, I was at uh, the universe. I was in university um, here in Toronto at York university and uh, you know, the invasion of Iraq and Af- Afghanistan, first Afghanistan, and then the invasion of Iraq was, imp- was impending. And so there was a large anti-war student movement that sort of erupted out of that. Um, and I, th- that's when I uh, joined that movement and learned a lot about uh, the world and politics and, and what's going on back home and started reading up on it. And um, and this was aside from my own personal experience, of course. Now I could kind of put the two together and make sense of all of it. Uh, and through, you know, the anti-war movement, uh, that's where I learned most of my politics and be- and became a socialist as well. So um, that's, that's you know, a big part of it. And then I continued to be active on the universities, on the campuses. And when BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, was called from Palestine, uh, I quickly, you know, was on board with that and started campaigning for uh, BDS here. And we saw many successes. You know, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, um, the Ontario branch, uh, passed a resolution in support, uh, in an endorsement of BDS uh, back in 2006. And that was the first Canadian institution to, boy- to you know, pass a resolution endorsing the boycott, divestment, and sanction of Israel for its, for its crimes. Um, and so we kept going with that. But of course, BDS was then subject to a lot of backlash, a lot of attack. Um, and, you know, now we're seeing the most recent manifestation of, of that uh, backlash uh, in the, uh, the definition of the IHRA, the International Holocaust uh, uh, Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism which, uh, you know, some governments have passed and is the Israel lobby has really been pushing hard for governments to pass that definition. And the problem with that definition is that it conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. Um, and, and so, you know, we've had to really, really uh, push, push back against that. And we've had some limited success, I would say. And probably from the most recent crisis, and we're seeing, you know, the public opinion really, uh, go in favor of Palis- Palestinian rights. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how far the IHRA definition really goes after this. Yeah. So, but getting back to like some of my personal experiences, I will um, mention some of the ways that I was attacked as well uh, personally. Uh, so I was trespassed from York University actually for a period of a year in 2013. Uh, it was just after we had. Uh, the student union at uh, York University passed BDS. Um, and so we had a protest and to celebrate and to call on the university to follow suit. And uh, the university administration issued me a trespass notice. Um, I was alumni at the time, so I had already graduated. And they were sort of framing alumni as this gray area where you're not really part of the community, but you are, but you're not. So they were able to use that to sort of say, okay, well, you can't be on our uh, property for a year and this is private property that's a whole other issue whether you know universities are public or private that that that's also an issue that students um, the student movement really uh, has to a limited extent extent taken up and it, it should take up even further <clears throat> uh, because these administrations are using uh, you know the whole thing that we're a corporation basically um, and and so this is private property uh, this is this has been an ongoing sort of neoliberal part of the neoliberalization process, the corporatization of universities uh, 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 that's been happening for the last twenty or thirty years or so. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I was trespassed that year, and then um, 
we sort of started a weapons divestment campaign after that um, at the universities. And then finally, I, I uh, got, uh, I, I started meeting with community members in the greater Toronto area, Palestinian community members from like uh, Palestine House, which is the Palestinian Canadian Community Center here. And uh, uh, they asked me to run for uh, its election. It's actually an elected, uh, the board is an elected body from Palestinian community members. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 we we ran on a left wing slate and we won it by a landslide, um, and so then I became um, on the board of of the Palestinian Canadian Community Center, and have been active there since more with the community, um, a transition from the university setting, and then see in my professional life, however, I like you said, I am a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and I was going through therapy school. Uh, this whole time and throughout that time I will talk about a interesting moment which is when a potential client was referred to me by the faculty when I was in training and um, that client decided not to take me on uh, because uh, apparently he googled my name and found that I was listed on the Canary Mission blacklist uh, which is a website of all of these names of different activists uh, with their profiles, uh, 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 you know, smearing them as, as anti-Semitic. Um, and nobody knows who the, uh, the operators of this website is. It's, it seems to be uh, well-organized. Um, and, and so this uh, potential client found me there and complained that, you know, he didn't want to take me on. So then the faculty was alarmed by that. And they checked my profile on Canary Mission. They called me in for, uh, my supervisor had called me in for, a, for you know, to question me, and which really felt like an interrogation. And, um, uh, and then I panicked, of course. I reached out to the USA Palestine Mental Health Network, mm-hmm. which is a, a wonderful network of, of psychotherapists and psychoanalysts based in New York. Um, and they wrote a letter on my behalf to the faculty of my uh, training institute, wow. which was in, thankfully immediately accepted. And so they completely dropped it and Canary Mission was discredited um, in their view. Um, and then this episode then returned when I graduated from therapy school just last July and I applied to get licensed. Um, and the licensing body, uh, again, the licensing body now expressed its concerns. They said, you know, they, they delayed uh, letting me know whether I would be approved by four months. And four months later, they sent me uh, an email saying, well, one of our staffers found uh, your profile on Canary Mission and were concerned. Can you respond to this? And so, again, I reached out to the USA Palestine Mental Health Network. I wrote a response of my own. They wrote me a letter. And again, immediately... Uh, it was thankfully accepted, and I I got licensed uh, well, as a therapist here in Ontario. Mom, when I um, was booking you for this podcast, that I'm sure you're not surprised to hear, Canary Mission was search result number one on Google for you. What a wow. what yeah, a ridiculous no. and offensive <laughs> service this is! It's basically smearing anyone who speaks about justice or fairness. You know, in mm-hmm. the Middle East, um, mm-hmm. and Ariel, you have also been a victim of qu- quite a lot of targeting for for your outspoken. I mean, is it even outspoken to sm- simply speak the truth that there is injustice? Um, anyway, I, you are a courageous person, Hamam, for for <laughs> continuing because I can. I I. By the way, I'm a technologist and a web developer, so I also noticed that Canary Mission manages to get search result number one. There's a lot of engineering and a lot of money behind that. So that's pretty offensive. I I admire both of you for continuing to be fighters with the abuse you've both received. And with that, Ariel, I'd love to hear your story. Sure. Um, So my story is is quite personal and uh, I think has some uplifting elements to it um, in that uh, one of the things that has been changing rapidly in the past few years is Jewish American opinion, um, which is really breaking with what had been um, unquestioned support for Israel. So um, I grew up in the uh, anti-war nuclear, the anti-nuclear movement of the 1980s and the 1990s. 
Um, and I grew up mostly secular, um, as a secular Jew for the most part. And as I came into adulthood, um, I began to explore my Jewish identity and Jewish religion and um, really it made an intention to make that a part of my life. And it was, wasn't was too long after that that I, um, I guess, discovered the issue of Palestine and uh, was immediately appalled, but it still took me longer to to really grasp the the breadth of 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 the issue, and uh, when I first did, um, close friends of mine and and my family, like I didn't understand why they disagreed with me so much because to me it was kind of simple. We were doing these horrible things, so we shouldn't do these horrible things, and uh, this boycott movement had been called for, so we should do that. Um, it wasn't until 2013 that I that I traveled to Palestine for the first time, and it was um, on a delegation with um, they're now called Eyewitness Palestine, but before it was called Interfaith Peace Builders. And I was so horrified, and it took me a, a number of months afterwards of um, what I now recognize was grief of uh, grieving um, this 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 disconnect because I really hadn't been able to conceive of the uh, degree of the crimes being committed. And um, I'm proud to say I haven't stopped really for a day since then. And um, I've raised my children both within um, a Jewish establishment community here in the United States, which means Jewish summer camp and um, members of a synagogue and uh, Jewish religious school. Um, but also, um, I took them in between their bar and bat mitzvahs to, we spent three and a half weeks in the West Bank, um, traveling and, and living with Palestinian families and participating in protests. And they have both, you know, kind of found their own way and their own politics, um, since then. But I, I, I've gotten to see this change in, in Jewish American opinion firsthand, so when my when my children were young and I would drop them off at um, their summer camp for the summer, the other parents knew what I did because I'm on Canary Mission as well, and you know so on. And like my son was bullied very badly. Um, they nicknamed him Little Hamas, and uh, his friends would you know say to him, you know your mother supports terrorism. My mother says that your mother's a bad person blah, 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 blah. But my daughter, who's just two years younger, didn't have that, that, that same degree of an experience. And she has now this, uh, this group of, of camp friends, and at least half of them are pro-Palestinian rights. And, uh, you know, she, she said to me the other day, Oh, we have this thing when one of our camp friends posts on the on their Instagram or whatever something pro-Israel. She said this during the the latest attack. We say, "Up, oh, lost another one." But she's become an outspoken voice. Um, she's eighteen now and headed off to college. She's become an outspoken voice in Ju young Jewish community for for Palestinian rights. And you know that would have that was was unheard of ten years ago um, when. When uh, when my, when I would drop my children off at camp and um, they were horribly bullied, and we've seen like the we've seen Jewish youth organizations rise up and say you can't teach us these lies, and um, you know uh, my son's um, camp friends are like you know all of a sudden are like wow you saw Palestine oh my gosh that's so exciting and even, I guess, kind of trendy for them. But this is a huge, huge shift. And I think it's only going to, that this, this change is only going to increase. Now, it, it does not um, transfer over to Israeli children or Israeli youth by any means. Um, and we, we, for a few years in Jewish American community, talked about what we call a a divorce between um, American Jews and Israeli Jews because American Jews are more and more questioning Israel and speaking up for Palestinian rights, and Israeli Jews are um, Israeli Jewish youth are marching down the streets of Jerusalem, chanting "Death to Arabs," and we've seen this uh, 
um, resurgence. I won't say rise because it was it's always been there, but a resurgence of Kahanism in Israel. And for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with Kahanism, Kahanism is an ideology that is uh, most comparable to the KKK. And in fact, I often just refer to it as the, the Jewish KKK. It's an extremist, violent, terrorist, racist um, ideology. It began in the 70s under Mir Kahan, and it's been the inspiration for um, bombing attacks here in the United States and massacres, uh, a mass shooting um, in the West Bank city of Hebron. And we're, we're watching right now in Israel um, T-shirts and stickers in these marches. They say, uh, Kahan was right. You're referring to Rabbi Mir Kahan, the, the, yeah. the founder of this yeah. um, radical racist ideology. So, you know, we have both things occurring at once. And uh, it's a really horrific situation um, in in uh, the 1948 borders of Israel right now. Where one of the things that we're watching is that a number of the violent um ideological uh, West Bank settlers are moving back inside the green line to the cities like Lud, where there is where there are Palestinian citizens of Israel so that they can make sure to establish their racist violence inside the city and uh, to try to prevent organization and and community and culture for Palestinian citizens of Israel. So, uh, you know, American Jews are going one way and Israeli Jews are going a, a, a horrific, horrific way. Um, but as I've said before, you know, th- this is about changes of government. And so it's, it's um, my community's job as, as American Jews to push our government, the American government, to say this is not, uh, Israel does not speak for me, and I do not want Israel to get my tax dollars. And it's also a, up to us as American Jews to be saying this to our synagogues, because when you belong to a synagogue in the U.S., you you pay your um, annual or monthly dues to belong. And a portion of those uh, go to the American Jewish Federations and other umbrella groups. And some of the sometimes some of that goes to the Israeli military and, and so on. And so we have our own work to do to uh, both expose that expose the complicity of American Jewish institutions in Israel's uh, system of apartheid and to see that that changes. I'm also of Jewish heritage, and it happens that I'm happy to say my family is pretty clued in, more or less. Um, I live in Flatbush, Brooklyn. What that means is that I live right next to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, which is a center of um, Hasidic, a, a major Jewish community, and Borough Park, which is another. So I'm right between them. I really love meeting people from all different backgrounds. But I have to say that when you speak of Kahanism, I think I'm not sure if that term is exactly the same as what I often use the term, the Jewish settler movement, the, the movement to settle the West Bank and create populations to display to make sure that the land is claimed which is of course is offensive and i have to say that among many of the orthodox or Hasidic jews who i meet i'm really disturbed by um extreme trumpism extreme extreme trumpism in fact some of the biggest trump followers i know are um Hasidic jews or orthodox jews in in new york city and that doesn't make me happy I've been following that very closely in the past uh, couple of years, especially in the past year, as it has continued to rise and um, among Orthodox Jewish communities, which are a growing population. How does Kahanism show up in your world? Actually, that is a good question, because we do have a version of it here in Canada, which is uh, it's manifested through a, a group that many people know, but others don't, the Jewish Defense League, the JDL. Yes, yes. Yes, so the, the the JDL is quite active in Canada, um, in Toronto. Um, I'm not sure about outside of Toronto, but in Toronto, it's definitely very active. It uh, is uh, its leader is his name is I'm going to say Meyer Kahan. 
<laughs> so what's what's his name? Meyer Weinstein. Okay. Um, right, Meyer Weinstein. Uh, and uh, he's got his own podcast. He's got his you know big social media following, and uh, yeah, it's a quite a viciously ex- extremist uh, group that is um, you know on the uh, in the U.S. It's uh, you know on the terror list, uh, the FBI ter- ter- terror list. Uh, here in Canada, it's not, so it does operate legally as far as I know. Um, but it has, you know, it has engaged in violent uh, behavior here in, here in Toronto. Um, uh, uh, there were incidents of, of physical, you know, physical assault that, that took place at, at various uh, rallies uh, for, for Palestinian rights mm-hmm. uh, by, by the JDL. And uh, you can see on social media, there's a lot of that. What bothers me the most about this kind of thing and about the Canary mission, um, you know, really it's just a stone wall to try to prevent people from, from being heard, um, is that it's a distraction. I mean, I'm sort of getting back to what I was originally thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a distraction from the problem that is all too convenient from those who are profiting off the problem. And I think that it's so easy to crank up the anti-Semitism, crank up the Islamophobia, and there's plenty of both, you know, and it's so easy to pour gasoline on those fires. Any fool can do it. And that, Mm -hmm. to me, takes up all the oxygen in the discussion Mm -hmm. about the real problems. And maybe, you know, that's even why earlier I was saying, you know, I, I'm in a way I'm exhausted hearing about what Americans think and what Canadians think about Israel and Palestine because we're not helping. We're only making all we're doing is creating noise. We're not addressing mm-hmm. the problem, or or are we the problem? Or is America the you know is America's weapons the problem? And Canada's got plenty of weapons too, and Europe's got plenty of weapons that they're all selling to Israel and Saudi Arabia. We haven't even talked about the Yemen war. I- is actually a strain of the settler movement Mm -hmm. and a more far-right strain of that because Uh, even within the settler movement kahanism um was banned from Uh, israel's knesset uh they were banned for being too racist which is incredibly astounding to be too racist for israel i mean that really Mm -hmm. takes effort uh, they were listed, they've been listed on the, by the U.S. State Department as a terrorist organization. And Netanyahu has just revived them in the past two elections, and then specifically in Israel's last election, has brought Kahanism back into acceptability and normalized it. And so now we have a Kahanist party in Knesset, and that has given a green light for the Kahanist settlers, because there is a large, and anybody who's hung out in um, the Flashpoint city of Hebron in the West Bank, as I have, has seen stickers throughout that say Kahan was right. But everyone was, you know, in very, like it was hidden before, you know, it was anonymous, the stickers. But it's given a green light for the Kahanist movement in Israel to come back out into the light of day, to carry out these uh, pogroms, which are um, you know, uh, uh, terror mobs yeah. um, attacking Palestinians. Uh, we had one incident where one of these um, terror mobs pulled a Palestinian man out of his car um, on the road. Uh, it, it was a lynching. This, and some uh, of this... Senseless, continued to beat him um, after he was unconscious. I believe some of this was before the, I mean, this was actually what what broke out into the war. Right. I mean, we we were all following this, but most of the world was oblivious to the fact that there was, you know, crystal knocked style rallies, hate rallies in the streets of East Jerusalem. Yeah, the first resurgence of the Kahanist rally, and it was led by um, a current now Knesset member who's a Kahanist, took place um, at really the beginning of of the latest escalation. You know, and he's also been um, present in Sheikh Jarrah in uh, as they're trying to forcibly remove Palestinian families from their homes. So um, this is a whole outbreak of right. Like I said, it, it's hard to be too racist for Israel, and, mm. and yet, yet they're doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, th- 
the fact that um, the term white supremacist can can actually does have a strong intersection with many right wing Jewish movements, um, and you know there, this is this is a this is a truth that's cutting deep. And I'm really glad, Ariel, that you clarify that Kahanism is a small subset, hopefully small subset of the Jewish settler movement, because I know people I, I have been- I would say small. I would say small. I would say a subset. I was hoping the, it was small. Uh, I would say subset, not <laughs> yeah. necessarily small, and growing rapidly. That's what, And um, yeah. it's really being led in that first march that you mentioned, the, the death to Arabs march, as it was termed, yeah. it's being led, it was led by young people. These are, these are teenagers, uh, many of them ultra-Orthodox, um, it's a movement of, of, of Israeli youth. Right. Okay. Well, you know, I want to, I have so much I want to talk to about. Um, every podcast I do is too short, but this one is definitely going to be too short. I want to move on to a topic actually that I think you tweeted about Ariel, but I'm going to ask Hamam about it. I think you said that Anthony Blinken should meet with the leader of Hamas since he's meeting with Netanyahu. That made a lot of sense to me. You know, as I, a friend asked me what I think of Hamas, I said, no matter what I think of Hamas, they're no worse than Netanyahu. I guess, Hamam, in a way, what I'd like to ask you is, what is Hamas? I know what Hamas is in the community I'm in. What is Hamas in your perception? Well, an interesting question about Hamas, because uh, it's not, maybe not so, not, not so clear, but Hamas is the, Islamic resistance movement. It emerged uh, as an outgrowth of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood that was originally in Palestine in the early 20th century. Uh, but then, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood was mostly in Egypt and uh, uh, sort of left Palestine, except in, in Palestine there, there was the um, sort of Islamic school that, uh, that developed and then became Hamas in, uh, in the 80s. Uh, and in 1987, actually, at the outset of the first Intifada, uh, Hamas was, uh, was, pro was, was founded um, by a group of Palestinians, um, uh, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian uh, religious uh, uh, people in figures in Gaza. And they sort of, uh, sort of represented the voices of more poor uh, communities in Gaza that, uh, that needed social services that weren't there. And so they sort of came and filled in that gap, but they got a lot of that funding from the Israeli, you know, Israeli grants, Israeli government, that they applied for that funding so that they can uh, create these clinics and schools to teach uh, refugees in Gaza. Uh, um, and eventually they, they became uh, a political force uh, that rivaled, below has been the main, you know, the representative and a voice, uh, and, and all of a sudden now you have this uh, religious um, extremist, as a matter of fact, uh, in, in many, many senses, uh, 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 sort of grouping uh, configuration that has come out of Palestine um, to rival the, the PLO. And uh, Hamas proceeded to engage in uh, resistance activities and then armed resistance. Um, and and uh, uh, and, and carried out attacks uh, against both military and civilian Israeli targets. Now, uh, personally, I oppose any attacks against civilian targets. Uh, always have. Um, I don't oppose, you know, attacks against military targets. Uh, I believe that's legitimate armed resistance, and international law gives us that right um, as an occupied people. Uh, but against civilians, I do. Um, I, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I oppose that kind of tactic and, uh, you know, Hamas, because of that, Hamas was labeled as a terrorist organization itself in various uh, parts of the world, like the U.S. and Canada. And uh, now it's become this sort of political force that uh, because it has managed to garner so much support from uh, Palestinians uh, that it, 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 it's a major uh, rival to the ruling uh, party in the West Bank, uh, a Fatah party that's part of the PLO. Uh, in the Palestinian Authority, um, and that's where you kind of have a stalemate uh, in, the, in the Palestinian political process. Uh, uh, but I think more importantly here is that we need to look at the, the bigger context. Like Hamas is not a natural sort of, uh, like it's not something that grew out of Palestinian culture. 
Palestinian culture was quite secular for the longest time. Um, the Islamist sort of section of, of, of Palestinians was, uh, was, was in the minority. It was not a powerful force whatsoever. Uh, in fact, Palestinians are the most, some maybe, you know, one of the most secular Arab people um, in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, traditionally. Um, however, this kind of Islamist strain sort of started to gain prominence and more, uh, more popular as a direct result of the ongoing occupation and, and blockade and uh, denial of refugee rights and just the oppression, the constant of ongoing oppression and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians by Israel. And because the world failed to do anything about it, to stop it, right? Israel carries out its war crimes um, and violations of international law with complete impunity. And, and obviously when um, the PLO hasn't been able to liberate Palestine from from that, then people are going to start looking elsewhere. And this is where Hamas started to gain more, uh, more popularity. People want to give, uh, to give another faction and a chance at, uh, you know, it, it, Hamas is an expression of, of downtrodden and oppressed people. Uh, you know, Amira Haas put it best that any violence from a, an occupied or a, an oppressed people you know, it's not because these people are more violent than any other. It's, it's a sign. It's a, it's a symptom of, of, of a problem uh, uh, that this population is, is suffering from. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Even, even, I, I, actually, I would add, even in South Africa, yeah. you had the, the, the ANC, the African National Congress, with Nelson Mandela's uh, resistance group. And you also had other groups like the Black Consciousness Movement. Which is which was like the equivalent to Hamas. So it wasn't just this one sort right. of organization that, that that engaged in armed resistance. I want I want to draw a comparison because I, I so totally agree with you. I work at thankfully work um, kind of on many issues, but I do I work across the Middle East, and you know this is what we saw from the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and imposing crippling, brutal sanctions um, that made life so difficult and it caused many deaths as well in, in Iran. And then we saw, and, and this was to be expected, we saw Iranian internal politics um, move very far to the right. It emboldened the hardliners. It increased the, the internal repression that Iranians face because that's what that outside um, uh, uh, oppression does. I'm glad we're all emphasizing that religion is certainly not one of the roots of this cause. I think neither among the Jewish nor um, Arab sides, it's not about the religions. Um, no, it's not about religion. And like, I, I'm personally a Palestinian Christian, and 20% um, of Palestinians worldwide are, are Christian. Mm -hmm. and most yeah. of us were expelled um, and our lands confiscated by the Israeli government. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, um, I, as a Palestinian Christian, I'm concerned with uh, with Hamas's uh, religious ideology. I wouldn't want that ruling <laughs> ruling over uh, uh, ruling Palestine um, any you know at any time. Um, so that's something that we have to contend with as well. But yeah. again, it goes back to the root cause, which is you know the expression of the oppressed yeah. um, and manifest in these different different ways, including reactionary forces. And I, I would argue as well that the act of repression, uh, the act of Israel, of the establishment of a settler colonial state that, that imposes apartheid, um, ha, does such a disservice and causes a type of internal uh, oppression to um, the Jewish people as well. And I would argue that that is part of the cause of uh, the Kahanis movement, these far right, you know, further and further far right movements that we see and Israel becoming more and more of an ethno national state itself, um, religiously oppressive uh, to, to Jews as well, that yeah. this is a product of that. I think there is no more classic case study of how war escalates into more war, into forever war, into hatred and fear and more war than Israel and Palestine. 
I also just want to quickly mention that another chapter in the Hamas story is um, how George W. Bush tried to engineer an election in 2006 that resulted in Palestine breaking into two. And I don't even think we have time to get into that today, because but there's so much history here that I think people do not know. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm pointing to USA's culpability in the mess that happened in 2006. We are all anti-war activists. And I think that um, when the going gets tough, the anti-war activists get going and there's nowhere where it's tougher than here. Um, we can't give up. I feel sometimes when I mention anti-war activism in the context of Israel-Palestine, I just get sad laughter and absolutely no no consideration at all. Um, this is something I tweeted about myself. Um, I saw a host on, on an MSNBC show say that a peace treaty is impossible in the Middle East. And I'm like, well, you know, first of all, is it is it their right to, to rule out the only thing that can possibly save an entire region from continued disaster? I mean, if it's not a peace treaty, if we don't eventually find peace, where are we going? <sighs> I think I'll just speak a little bit on uh, on the U.S. involvement here, like the, the meddling that you, you, you mentioned, yeah. uh, Mark, which, which is that it's, it's not like the U.S. has been meddling and the affairs of, of you know people for so long it's it's it's, uh, it's it's part of the wider project of american imperialism so the anti-war movement has you know has a direct role to play here um it's it's directly within the anti-war movement's mandate to, to take up the issue of palestine uh you know the u.s meddled in afghanistan it meddled in in iraq um it, it's been meddling in the middle east for so long you know war for oil this is all part of it, and Israel was propped up to be the, you know, imperialism's uh, um, client state in the Middle East. It's, it's police watchdog, and, and this is what it does. You know, the, Israel came to uh, imperialism's rescue many times. Once in 1967, when it attacked Egypt and defeated its uh, uh, Arab nationalist, the Arab nationalist leader uh, uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser was the equivalent of Hugo Chavez um, and they, they crushed him in 1967, defeated Arab nationalism and Arab liberation movements and then Islamism gained popularity to, in repl to replace Arab nationalism and so it's been divide and conquer, um, the direct divide and conquer and then you had of course and you mentioned 2006 the US has been meddling in trying to divide Palestinians between Fatah and between Hamas for so long uh, you know, uh, Hamas getting its funding from Israel with, upon its creation uh, was, was, was part of it. Uh, you, you think Israel didn't know what it was funding at the time? Mm -hmm. They knew perfectly well what they were putting their money into, uh, you know, what they were supporting. They wanted an, an alternative uh, to, to, the, to the secular Palestine Liberation Organization, and they got it. Um, and uh, so now they can continue to keep ethnically cleansing and continue occupation and, and siege. Well, and I would so agree, and I would bring that to the discussion of the um, current U.S. Cold War with China. And I, I heard an interesting um, analysis that's uh, yesterday that I've been mulling over, and um, about uh, you know as we are as this Cold War with China is heating up in the U.S., uh, the analysis was that it's going to be harder, and that that's going to create an additional barrier to the U.S. Um, breaking its relationship with Israel because as this Cold War heats up, uh, we're going, the U.S. is going to view countries very simply with, in terms of are you with us or are you with China? Israel being with the U.S. creates another reason for U.S. administrations not to hold Israel accountable and so on. It creates this additional barrier as well. I'd like to ask you both for last words. I'm going to use my last words for some things that people can do, um, a couple of campaigns that we're running at Code Pink. So uh, one of them, if you're U.S.-based, we are pushing to, and we have a couple different mechanisms with which we're pushing, but we're pushing to uh, block the $735 million sale of precision-guided weapons 
uh, to Israel. We have legislation in both chambers of Congress, though that's a little bit stalled. So we're going to be pushing at the State Department because this was actually uh, pushed through by the State Department in some pretty underhanded ways, the licensing of this. So uh, folks can find that at codepink.org. And the other campaign that we're running right now is a, a BDS campaign. We are calling on National Geographic, who is using Israeli actress Gal Gadot, infamous for use the hashtag LoveIDF. Need I say more? I could go on with all the details of Gal Gadot, but uh, uh, National Geographic is using her to host one of their television series, and she just hosted an episode on the displacement of indigenous people, gross, we're calling on National Geographic to drop Gal Gadot. You can find that petition as well on our website, codepink.org, and we'll be doing a protest outside of National Geographic's offices in DC as well, telling them to give Gal Gadot the boot. All right, Ariel, um, you are amazing what you do. I don't know how you do it all. Um, I follow you on social media and wow. Hamam, love to just hear what, again, you know, what, what I'm just thinking of is the people who are listening are not just concerned people or progressives, but know that we must find peace. Uh, what is our hope for peace? How are we going to find it? Well, um, that's certainly a big question. But... <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> just throwing it all on you right there. Don't like your shoulders yeah. now. <laughs> We have to keep pushing. We have to keep pushing. We have to keep, you know, doing what we're doing, but also being self-critical as well, and and looking at, you know, what could be pushed harder, and and not just leave it to uh, uh, to left-wing, uh, um, active non-Palestinian activists um, and 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 anti-war groups. I really think that, you know, if there's a Palestinian community galvanizing force there to join forces with uh, with anti-war uh, the anti-war movement, that would really yes. give a big boost. Uh, to, to the pressure that we can we can um, we can put forth. Uh, so that's you know an area I would encourage um, I would encourage anti-war activists to take a look at. So they're they're not alone doing this, but they're with Palestinians themselves, um, um, and especially you know there is a Palestinian working class uh, that has been totally neglected um, uh, in representation here in, in Canada and certainly in the U.S. Uh, there, like here in Toronto, there's a, the adjacent city of Mississauga. There's there is a large Arab community that's with a lot of a lot of poor and working class people that are you know nowhere to be found when we have uh, events. Hmm. Um, and yet, when this crisis happened, you know thousands of them came out. And so, this is a, an opportunity for us to make these connections, uh, to network, and to start uh, looking at the issues that, that these families are facing. And if we can support working class people, you know, Palestinian working class people especially, then I think we have, we can create, a, 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 you know, a force uh, of power there, like power base, a base, a base of support, you know, that we can, we can start to, to grow. And so it's not just, you know, uh, anti-war activists, left-wing activists, can't just be another left-wing organization. We have this problem here too, which is, oh, this is another left, another left-wing organization and another left-wing group. Yeah, so this is something we need to kind of move beyond. Um, so, but I will end on a personal, you know, I want to take this back full circle because you did start, uh, Mark, by asking me about my great aunt and I, I didn't uh, uh, respond directly about what happened there. So I, I do want to tell our listeners what, uh, what, what, what transpired. And it's still, it's still not easy for me to talk about because it's, it's so fresh and I don't realize how impacted I am until I start talking about it. And um, yeah, so I was actually in session with, with one of my clients, a, a therapist, and all of a sudden I, I hear my mother screaming. Um, um, and so I put the session on, I, I tell my client to hold on. and I mute my, my, my mic and I go outside and my mother's just in a panic and she says, my great aunt, um, they, they, they told the, the Israeli military informed the residents of the building and it's one of the high rises that they're going to, to bombard it uh, within an hour. And they can't find your, they can't find your great aunt, you know, my mother's aunt. They can't find her. She's nowhere to be found. And she was on Zoom with her cousins 
and I can't get the image out of my mind just looking at that screen and seeing my cousins there bewildered, confused, and helpless, not knowing what to do. They're all shaking their head looking for some kind of answer. And my mother was just screaming. And, and I, you know, I said, look, I'm in session. I, you know, I'll, I need to just go back in. I go back into the session. I can't believe I did the session. I was able to hold myself. And then I came out of that uh, and, and, um, and just was like, okay, like, you know, what, I don't know what we're going to do. And we just did we get a hold of her? And she's like, no, no one knows where she is. And then just before the hour ended, the ceasefire came into effect. And so the building was spared. It was the last hour. Wow. Wow. And then they found her. And it turns out that her neighbor went to her apartment, was banging on the door, and she got scared. So she didn't answer him. And he was trying to tell her that we need to get out. But she, she, she was just terrified of the panic outside. And so she stayed in. And then when, when he left, he gave up and left. That's when she it got quiet and she left the apartment to, to, to find out what's going on. And thankfully, she was able to find someone who told her, you need to get out of here. We're all getting out. Um, to, you know, Israel's going to bomb our mm -hmm. building. <laughs> and so she left. And I don't know where she went after that, but eventually they found her. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think we'll let that story ring in our ears as we say goodbye um, and think about how we would each feel if we heard our mothers screaming as we were working during our days in New York or Toronto. Um, it really brings it home. That was, so. That's absolutely the worst part, Mark. That, that's the worst part, Mark, is, is, is the, the screams are still in my mind. Yeah. That, that, because yeah. I can't imagine, because I tell myself, what if, she was killed then how much worse can those screens get right and, and that's what really gets the point well you know for me as a jew the worst part is i became an anti-war activist because nobody should ever be told that their building is about to be bombed nobody should bomb buildings ever um and damn well um, it's been an amazing conversation. I learned so much. You've both expanded my mind a bit. Um, so thank you both. And I hope we'll, I hope we'll get a chance to talk again. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Ariel. It's an honor yeah. to speak with, along, alongside mm -hmm. you, Ariel. Nice to meet you. It's an honor to speak alongside you. And... See you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.